0: Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, Well, I hope you have your Bibles open already and uh, that you would keep them open with me as we walk through these chapters in uh, this letter of Romans, as we continue our series, The Gospel in Romans, The Power of God for Salvation. Uh, I have to tell you, I have a, a prayer for this series, and I have an image in my mind for this morning, and really, particularly these few days together, the prayer for this series is our prayer, is that over the coming years, the Lord would build for us a foundation for our faith in the power of God for salvation, as, as we find it in this letter to the Romans. This is our prayer. But uh, I have a vision for this morning, just something that I, I, I want to see. I want to see people with their, their Bibles open and, and seeing what's there. It's there for us. The power of God for salvation is made plain and powerfully plain for us in words. We can read and and know and and believe. And the Holy Spirit of God inspired those words and has worked by those words to bring that message to, to countless many in the church and today to us. And so my, my hope is as we look at four chapters, you don't look at four chapters in just a matter of a few moments on a Sunday morning. And so my hope is that we would move quickly through these and, and we begin to see, wait a minute, man, that's powerful. I want to come back to that. Man, I can't wait till we get to preaching that when we come back through after this overview and that we get the word this morning. This is what we get. And so let's keep our Bibles open. Let's make some notes. Let's see what's there and pray, Lord, work by your word. Let let me just put it to you this way. This morning, we don't need a sermon. Not one of us here needs a sermon. We need God's word. And if this sermon would be of any value this morning, it would be because it, by God's grace, holds out that word to us. So let's give attention this morning. Uh, We are in a four-part mini-series through the whole book of Romans before we then go back and work just verse by verse through this thing over the the coming years each spring. And um, winter and spring, I'm not sure when winter and spring are in Florida. It just seems all summer to me. Um, But we're in this four-part series in the second week this week um, in chapters 5 through 8. We'll look at 9 through 11 next week and then 12 through 16 the week following, I want to begin by looking actually all the way back to Romans chapter 1. You go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16 there, powerful statement, for I am, the apostle Paul, the author of this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What we have before us is the gospel, the good news, which is the power of God. And friends, there isn't a bigger power. And we're talking about the power of the God, okay? And that power is leveraged for salvation. So we have the greatest power leveraged for the greatest good that we could possibly imagine, which is to everyone who believes. And so a prayer that we ought to also pray is, Lord, Grant me faith to receive this. I and mean, this is power. This is power for my greatest need. What I, I need, what I need this morning is to believe. Last week we considered the gospel in the first four chapters of Romans. And the title of last week's message was By Grace Alone, Through Faith Alone. It's really the theme of those first four chapters. Foundational reality for us in this letter of Romans. In Romans 1, we consider the wrath of God that's revealed against mankind in our sin and in our rebellion. We have an issue. We have a problem. It's a sin problem. But sin's actually not the problem. (laughs) The problem is our sin is a manifestation of rebellion against the holy God. And he has a righteous, a good, an upright, and a true wrath against sinners like you and me. So that's what Romans 1 holds out for us. And and Romans 2 demonstrates our willfulness in this rebellion, our failure to repent. Rather than turn in God in repentance, we turn to our neighbor in judgment. Rather than saying, I've got a problem, we say, you've got a problem. We've been doing that ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, right? We're good at it. And what we do is we prove that we know what sin is by failing to turn to God for help, but rather turning to our neighbor in judgment. Romans chapter 3. None is righteous. It's a really clear message. Not all of mankind is identical. Some, that is, even the Jews, received a great blessing in God's law. But this we share there are none who are righteous. Doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter what your particular sin pattern is, or what you know or what you don't know. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is sure. And then we have Romans 4, which holds out for us justification. He's laid out the problem, and the problem, everybody has this problem. But we have a solution to, to make us just, to justify us. Justification by grace through faith. The only hope for sinners is the grace of God to justify the unrighteous by faith. We're sinners, and that's not getting fixed on its own. We need to be made righteous by what I call the alien righteousness of Christ that's in Romans 1.17, that invades and transforms, justifies, reconciles, as we'll see together today. Before we look at Romans 5 and begin to open up what is there, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all of these words. There are a lot of words in this letter. And so many of them are like powerful words, words like wrath of God or good news being revealed or no condemnation or Abba, Father, beautiful words. I pray that we would hear them, we would understand them, and we would receive them as gifts with faith, that we would receive them as grace to us and that your grace would do what you do because your power is behind all of this, that you would transform our lives, grant us faith, redeem the lost, and bring us into a reconciled, joy-filled, rejoicing relationship with our God and establish a joy of relationship with us among one another in the church. Lord, this is much to ask, but you've leveraged your power to this end. And so we expect salvation. This is what you do. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. This morning we begin in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. And thank goodness, this passage begins with the gospel. This passage begins with, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. He just unpacked that in Romans 4. And unpacked this whole justification by grace through faith. And so this therefore then moves into a summary of what's been stated about the gospel thus far. That justification is by faith. And that justification brings peace with God. Previously there was wrath, there was enmity, our rebellion against Him and His right judgment of us. But now because of justification there is peace with God through Jesus Christ. It's grace. Romans 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is incredible because we have access by faith. Okay, Faith doesn't do the work. Faith grants access to the work which is the grace. The, the great gift that is given, faith receives it as such. But here's the deal. It's not just grace and faith. What does verse 2 say? Because you've got it open, right? you got it right there. You're like, you could tell me. Rejoicing. And this is a major theme that that Paul is going to sort of begin with here in 5, as he moves into this section of the letter, and he's going to close us with in 8 before he moves on to even more. He's going to hold out for us this good news that doesn't just produce justification. It produces rejoicing. The end of the gospel isn't a saved people. The end of the gospel is a rejoicing people. Verses 3 through 5, it's not just rejoicing in salvation. He says that it's rejoicing in suffering, because suffering produces endurance, and endurance, character, and character, hope. Here's what that does. This isn't a bland theology. This is not a systematic manual that unpacks doctrines that mean nothing to the lives of those who receive them. Paul is bringing his gospel proclamation right down into the circumstances of the lives of the church in Rome, and they're experiencing suffering. Perhaps Layers of persecution. We know that some of the church, particularly the Jews, were, were kicked out of the city for five years before they were able to return. That's Part of the reason why this letter is being written is to, to sew them back together as one church together in the gospel. They know what suffering is. And Paul is saying, hey, hey, this rejoicing is so great. It's by the power of God. It can be rejoicing even in that suffering because you guys are learning endurance together. He unpacks the gospel in Romans 5, 6 through 9. A a powerful and clear statement. For while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. We wouldn't die for a righteous person. Maybe somebody that we loved. Maybe. But Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And so while we're justified by His blood much more so we'll be saved from the wrath of God. And that's a powerful statement. It's worth an underline on that wrath of God. What are we saved from? We're saved from God's righteous judgment. We're saved from God. You know, I, I, I think there's this mentality that we walk around with. Like I think it's just sort of a cultural delusion that we walk around with that we're like saved from Satan, like Satan's coming to get us. Now, Satan hates God. That's why he gives a rip about us at all. And he's bringing us off into his Rebellion. What we need saved from isn't Satan. We need to be saved from our sin and the right wrath of God upon our sin so that we would be reconciled to God. This theme then is introduced in 10 through 11. This is the thing that I want us to get from this introductory portion. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this image of death being died, life being secured, and now having life, we live as a people of rejoicing. And that is a theme that will run all the way through the next four chapters. This theme of death to life and rejoicing. The gospel has been proclaimed. The gospel is received with faith, And then the gospel becomes a ground for a life lived in worship. And so let's see how that is unpacked as we look at verse 12, death in Adam, life in Christ. Verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, referencing Adam, the first parent, the first creation of God, and then out of Adam God made Eve, male and female. He created them in his image, and it was good. What he did was good, but Adam and Eve together, they rebelled against God's command in the garden and took upon themselves the curse of sin and death. And in doing so, through one man comes death through sin, so that death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And he begins to unpack this question like, what is the relationship between sin and the law? But the foundational reality is that Adam's sin spread like a disease to the entire human race. Verse 14 says something really powerful for us. It says that Adam is a type. Now, this is a, you might call it something like a metaphor. He's one who comes before, of which Jesus is the technical phrase, the anti type. Right? He's, he's the one to which the type was pointing, all right, that tells us something about the one that is to come. How is Adam a type? I mean, he's the sinner. How does he tell us something about who Jesus is? Well, Adam is the head of humanity as a representative. One thing that will come, uh, become an important theme for us in, in Romans, is that Paul is clear that those who came after Adam are actual sinners. They actually are sinners, in their being, because they come from Adam. And in their doing, they actually commit real, actual sins. From Adam to Moses are sinners, even though they hadn't been given an explicit law. Adam was given a law, he disobeyed, and he begat a bunch of sinners. But after Adam, there wasn't any explicit law given. How could they be sinners if they're not breaking any specific law, is some of the question, until Moses comes, and what's Moses do? Comes down the mountain with the law of God on the tablets, right? We call those the Ten Commandments. And and then begins to unpack for the Israelite people how they would walk in the way of God. So what does it mean that there are sinners before the law is given? But we're told that the wrath of God has already been revealed against mankind, even before the giving of the law. Romans 1.21, it'd be a good one to put as a note in the margin here. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. You see, sin has at its root not the disobedience to any particular law. Sin has its root, a failure to acknowledge God as God. And to give thanks to him as such. He is the generous God. It's not, not only to, to, to want to remove God from the role that he has... As our creator, but it's also to, to malign the character as, that he has as the generous creator. And so we shake our fist at God and we say, On my own rebellion against the creator, I can live. I know what's good. You're not generous. You're stingy, just like the serpent said. You're, you're the withholder. That's why you didn't let him eat. And so I'm going to grab what I want and I'm going to grab it my way. That's the root of our sin. Romans 5, 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. This is where Paul's going. This is where he's driving in his argument. Now, this is important. There are little phrases And and little indications that are given to us in our translations. Most of you, likely in your translations in verse 12, have at the end of that verse uh, an EM dash, a nice long dash, all right? And that long dash is there given as punctuation to indicate to us that we're going to step aside and talk about something for a bit. He's going to unpack what he just said, but he's going to come back to that thought in a little bit. That's what he actually does. Verses 12 and 18 belong together in terms of being one thought. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read 12 and 18. Follow along with me. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Adam is the type. He is a head of a people. And Jesus is the anti type. He is the head of a people. But one leads us in sin, and the other leads us in righteousness. This is how Adam is the type of Christ. Jesus stands as the representative head of a new creation in their justification and life, where Adam stood in our sin and death. Again, this is the theme of the coming chapters death and life and rejoicing. What does it mean to be dead in sin? Paul's asking. What does it mean to be made alive in Christ? What does the law and sin and wrath and rejoicing have to do with all of these things? But at the center, what does it mean to be brought from death to life? You see, that's the proclamation over the church today, right now. The proclamation is that in Christ, you can be moved from death to life. Like, that sounds good. How's that work? He's he's asking the same question. How's that work? He's going to unpack it for us. And one of the first things he does is, is for anyone here who's been around the church maybe for a little while, particularly if you were raised in the church, you've asked this question more than likely, verse 1, chapter 6. Man, Jesus died on the cross for my sin. My punishment's all paid for. I don't have any more punishment coming, so what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? There's like so much that's messed up about that question. (laughs) But there's so much that makes sense to my wicked heart about that question. I've asked that question. And his answer, of course, is by no means. It's such a practical question. Who here, real question, hasn't loved sin? I didn't say, who here hasn't sinned? (laughs) Who here has sinned? Who here hasn't actually just, like, liked it? Been glad you did. Chose it on purpose. Didn't fall into sin. Went into sin. Like, again. Because you like it. Who here hasn't practiced a pattern, a habit of sin, and thought to yourself, why really even work to leave this sin behind? I like it. I like it. On my own. I shall I shall live honestly, God's already saved me. Why, have, why not have the life that I have in Jesus that's secured by justification and have my own way of sin? This is a sweet gig, really. All right? I can be reconciled to God and reconciled to sin. And Paul says, no, 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 no. If you're dead to sin, you can't live to sin. That doesn't work. You can't be dead to something and be alive to something, remember, sin isn't just a behavior, it's a rebellion. Hear that? Sin is not just a behavior. It is not just a law-keeping or a law-breaking. It is a rebellion. You can't be reconciled to the king and rebel against him. It doesn't work like that. And he holds out this image of baptism. And this is where we go for baptism so very often. We read it often, when we practice baptism here at Cross Point Coast, do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, by the baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, there's a dichotomy. Death and life are not similar. They're different. They don't coexist. Right? We are moved from one thing to a new thing. And here's where he goes. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Let not sin therefore reign. Now that's worth an underline as well. Because if you're paying attention, you'll notice that is an imperative. It's a command. All right? You were just told to do something. Don't let sin reign. Now go do that. All right? I thought this was a book about grace. And yet here we are, we're only six chapters in, I knew it'd be about law. right? Don't let sin reign. It's actually the first imperative in Romans, and we're going to get a lot more, particularly after 12, as the church is, is told how to live, therefore, in light of grace. And here he is, already in verse 12, giving us a law. But the fact is, if you look just one verse before it, you see why he came to this. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see it turns out that verse 12 is not the first imperative in Romans. Verse 11 is. And what's the imperative? What are we told we we must do it? You have to do it, church. Consider yourselves. That's a thought statement. That's a belief statement, let me suggest. That's a faith statement. Do you believe, church, that you have been brought from death to life? That's the command. The command of Romans is faith. Do you believe it? Do you believe that that you're actually dead to sin? You're no longer a rebel that takes joy in rebellion, but you're reconciled that can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You've been brought from fleshly things to spiritual things by the very Spirit of God. Do you believe it? Do you consider yourselves dead to sin, faith? Therefore, don't let it rain. Don't let it rain in your lives. In light of faith, there is a way that we walk. That is the pattern of every one of the imperatives in Romans. It's really the pattern of the imperatives of Scripture. If this is true, what we have received by grace, if we've received it by faith, there's a way that's been purchased for us to walk. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. It's not a cruel demand. That is a gracious call. There is a right understanding with faith that leads to a transformed life. Paul asked the question again. If you go down to verse 15, he asks basically the same question he did at the beginning of the chapter. What then, are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? And again, the answer is the same, by no means. But did you hear the phrase? Did you hear the words? Not under the law, but under grace. See, law is a master. It makes a demand upon us. But we haven't been removed from all demands. We're still under something. But what are we under now? We're under grace. We're still under something. All of mankind, you were in Adam. Now you're in Christ, church. For the Jew, you were under the law. Now you're under grace, church. You were slaves to sin, verse 19 says, whether as a rebel in Adam or as a sinner under the law. Either way, you're a slave to sin. You're a slave to something. Now you're a slave to righteousness, and that's good news. That's rescue. Righteousness is a good and sweet and pleasing way to be reconciled to God and live the life that the creator knows the creation is to live. And now you're a slave to righteousness. You've been set on a new way, under a new grace. So verse 21 but what fruit were we getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Tell me, how was it going back when you shook your fist at God and you said, on my own, I will live? How, how did that work out for you? Like, how, how did that go? Oh, well, moments of incredible bliss. Moments of the flourishing and fruitfulness of sin. And so quickly, destruction. And it felt like death. Things of which... You are now ashamed. I went headlong, intentionally, into particular moments of sin and rebellion, and I don't want to talk about it on purpose because it was good. And I am ashamed. And he's asking such a practical question: What fruit were you getting from sin? Oh, it turns out it's death. But but you don't have to be under that law anymore. There's a law of grace for you. There's a righteousness that's been purchased to you that you need not be ashamed any longer because you've been transferred from death to life. Sin makes you work and work and work, and then when you get your reward, the wage for which you've labored, it turns out the wage is death. And that's where he goes in 6.23, the last verse of the chapter, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, we just sort of gutturally internally make those statements the same. The wage of sin is death. If you sin, you get death. But if you do the God thing, what he owes you is life. Is that what it says? Oh, no. No, they're not the same. One is a wage, and you earned it, and you get it. The other is not a wage. It's a gift. And how do you receive a gift? You show up on Friday and say, okay, I'm here. Heaven, right? Right? No. The gift comes to you, and you receive it, and that's called faith. Justification is genuine grace. It is a life-bringing gift, but we have a pattern that leads us to questions that seem hell-bent on the pursuit of sin, but that's slavery. That's the old way. That's the dead way. By the death of Jesus, we've been set free from the old way, and we've been granted a gift which is eternal life. We must consider ourselves dead to sin. You hear the call to faith? Now Romans 7 asks a question, or do you not know brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on the person only as long as he lives? And he goes on to ask the question, is law to blame for sin? If God hadn't given laws, wouldn't we not be sinners? And he gives an illustration. He says in in that first six verses of chapter 7, he says, what is the marriage vow that binds a husband and wife together? For those of you who are married here, more than likely you said it. You said something near the end, till death do us part. What's that mean? Well, it means we're bound by our vow as long as we live. And the passage says, but if a woman's husband dies, what is she? Free to mourn, it's true. But also free to marry. She's no longer bound by the vow. She may have a duty of love. She may have a duty of honor, a duty of mourning, but also is free from the vow to remain his husband. He offers an interpretation in verse 4. He says in in verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you do not belong to another, but to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear the fruit of God. We have died to the law, And we now belong to Christ. By his righteous life, he fulfilled the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. And by his sacrificial death, he put an end to the law. So we died. Okay? And whatever whatever binding reality the law had upon us is now gone. The vow's ended. It's only as long as you're alive. But in Christ, Christ died for us. And if we're united to him, we've died with him. And now we belong to another. And he raises us to life and he brings us into a new bondage. A a, a new, real vow and a union that's as permanent as we are alive now. And friends, if you're alive in Christ, you're alive forever. And so we're his. And we're his forever. So all who are in Christ are now free from the law and its demands "...and so free and bound to another that is the grace of God in Christ." Or, as verse 6 says, "...the new way of the Spirit." And we ask a question in verse 7, what shall we say? Again, it's going back to these questions that are very natural for us to ask. That the law is sin? And again, the answer is the same, by no means. I mean, it's under the law that sin and rebellion are brought into stark clarity. But did the law create sin? Well, first of all, we can say for sure no. Because there was a law, Adam broke it, and then there was no more law given. And yet they were sinners and under the wrath of God. And then the law comes, and those who received the law proved themselves sinners, just like all those who came before. Think of it like a thief. Before the law, when a thief stole something, was it really theft? Consider a guy named Bob, all right? Bob is a notorious thief in a quiet little town. He recently stole a nice new BMW from a lady named Susan. Sorry, Susan. He parked the car in the front driveway to show off his new ride. Bob has a new ride. About a week later, another guy, his name's Bill. Bill stole Bob's new ride from his driveway. Bob's stolen car is now stolen by Bill. Bob's ticked. He had a nice new car showing off in his driveway, and here comes Bill still in it. And we got Romans chapter 2. He who steals is quick to judge those who do the same. And what's Bob do? Bill's a thief. Want my car back. Right? Right? And what's he probably do? Now he's not only going to steal the car, he's probably going to kill Bill. Right? Now the mayor of the city gets sick of all this theft, and he decides to write up a new law. And that law goes something like this. Thou shalt not kill. And he publishes it, and Bill and Bob are in jail, and Susan gets her BMW back. Did the law create the sin? I mean, put it in stark clarity, and it unpacked for us the judgment upon sinners, but the law didn't create the sin. Everyone in the town's buzzing about the new law. And at the same time, they start to notice Susan's sweet BMW. I hadn't really noticed it before until it was in Bob's front driveway, and they don't steal the car because they know that they don't want to end up like Bob and Bill, right? But man, would they like a nice BMW like Susan's BMW. Now, at the same time, the mayor also decides to make another law. Not only does he announce, thou shalt not steal, he also announces, thou shalt not covet. Because what he saw was the real problem with Bob and Bill wasn't their theft, but it was their inordinate desire to have what their neighbor had. He sees that the problem isn't when Bill showed up at the house to take Susan's car, Bob's car. The problem is back when he coveted what his neighbor has. And the city, citizens of the town, they'd never really noticed before how much they coveted Susan's car until they heard, thou shalt not covet Susan's car. Did the law, thou shalt not covet, create their covetousness? No, no. Their sin of covetousness lay dormant until it was revealed by the good mayor's law. This is the illustration that's being unpacked for us in Romans chapter seven. Now, while there is a good bit less outright theft committed in the public eye, and when when cars are stolen, they're kept in the garage rather than the front driveway, because the citizens had never considered themselves thieves like Bob and Bill, their covetousness It's been with them the whole time. They wanted to be like Bill and Bob. They just weren't brave enough to pull it off. And now they're definitely not brave enough to pull it off, but their covetousness is on heightened alert. Let me put it another way, and perhaps this will resonate with you. I don't like making rules in my house. I I really don't. And my kids are like, that just can't possibly be true. All right? I really don't like it. For example, if I make a rule that you have to be out of bed by 7 a.m., I can pretty much guarantee that basically the rule that I just made is that you won't be up even one minute earlier. It's like I made a rule that said, don't get up until 6.59, right? So I don't like making rules in my house. If I make a rule that you can only play video games for one hour a day, it's like I made a rule that you have to play every single day. And it's like I made a rule that I have to argue with five more minutes, now, the fact is, in my house, the main time you hear five or ten more minutes is when Sandy goes upstairs, Jeremiah, it's time for dinner. Ten minutes! No, i got to get to the save point, right? So it's not just my kids who don't like rules. I don't like them either. Let's be clear. But when we hear the law, while the law is good, it also shows the human heart what is right and good. And it serves to activate in the heart this, this persistent need to press every boundary with a willful rebellion. You know, I hear the rule. I'm going to keep it, maybe. But I know what's right and good for me. I know what it is. See, the law, does it bring death? No. Sin that is in us brings death. That's Romans 7.13. You can add law after law after law, and the laws can be good, they can be true, they can be a good tutor for the soul to tell us what is right and good, but as a sinner, no law can change the human heart. That's an in here problem. It's going to reveal what's been there the whole time, but the fact is verse 14 remains true. I'm a fleshy man, and I don't stand a chance. If I could just interpret that just a little. I'm a man of the flesh. And in the face of the sin that is in the flesh, You can make all the laws in the world and all they do is condemn me. Look at verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Man. There's this cry that that Paul is building for us in this letter. And, and, and And the cry is, we need a Redeemer. We need a superhero who can fix a problem that that not even good things like a good law can fix about me. And not even a righteous deed can mitigate against my unrighteousness. And he cries out, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. I love it. It doesn't answer it. He just goes right to rejoicing. because That's where it goes, right? It's death, life, rejoicing. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And he goes back and he says, I, got a pro- I need a superhero. Thanks be to God. I'm going to read a quote from a, a commentator on Romans 7. He says, Romans 7 performs a service by calling into question certain popular notions that lack biblical foundation. And they're very popular because they're, they're, they're in us. I think they, they find their root in our pride and sinful rebellion. First, that soul's struggle is essentially against specific sins and habits. Paul talks here not of sins, but of sin. Our problem is not a particular sin that you've decided to prioritize that you're going to conquer. The problem is inside, and all it takes is the law to reveal it's been there the whole time. Secondly, that human nature is essentially good. And he says, no, wretched man that I am. I have a way that I go. I'm a rebel. That's what I am. And that sanctification is by means of the law. And that if one will only determine to do right, one will be able to do it. Man, you've tried it. And you know how that works. And that's why we have Romans 8. Romans 7 clarifies a few basic realities that our, our, our souls love to sort of rise up with in our rebellion. And he blows out of the water so he can give us Romans 8.1. I'll have to tell you, Romans 8.1, probably my favorite verse in the Bible, in part because it's so easy to memorize, all right? And it's so profoundly true. I don't think that there's too many greater comforts in the universe than this. There is therefore now no condemnation. For a person who has just cried out, wretched man that I am, before a holy God, to now get to say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Under the law, I'm condemned. And if I'm not condemned for breaking the law, I'm condemned for my sinful desire to find some way around it. But Jesus has not only freed us from the bondage to the law, but to the underlying issue of sin and its wage, which is death. So we get to Romans 8, 5 through 8. That there's a mind that's bent on the flesh and that remains there. And there's a mind that's bent on the way of the Spirit. The life that has been purchased. One leads to death and the other leads to life. And it's life and peace. See, we're not just transferred from death to life. We're transferred to shalom. To an ability to rest. To know the, the peace that we've been striving for as a wage and we get death. The peace that is received by a gift alone, which is grace. Grace. In verses 12 through 15, the Spirit put to death, death the deeds of the body. We're called to live in that. Jesus has dealt with the penalty of sin, and he secured a new gift, which is life. And all that remains for us is not to, to prove that we deserve that life, but what it remains for us is that we can walk in this life. What is a creature that is given life supposed to do? Live. Live in the life that has been given. And if you notice that it's a gift, give thanks. You see, we're moved from death to life to rejoicing. Verses 16 through 17, and he has to go here. Verses, I'm sorry, 15 and 16, I'm going to begin there. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, that is, inheritors of the fullness of the kingdom with Christ, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. I have just one quick story to tell you before we wrap up this section. Last night, I received a call from someone that I care about very much in a difficult situation as I hung up the phone relatively late at night. I began to pray, and I started my prayer, and I just said, God. And I thought, I didn't know what to say next. And I thought, that's not how I wanted to start. That's why. I don't want to talk to what he is. I want to talk to a who. I want to talk to who he is. And I thought, no, he's God, but that's that's not what I'm supposed to call him. That's, and then I, I said, maybe Lord. And I did. I, I went through this whole thing last night. Lord. I said, no. What I mean by Lord is I mean master. I was trying to think of what word to use to talk to someone that I had something serious to talk to him about. Because I care, right? And I thought, that's not it. And I said, what, what am I supposed to call you anyway? And I thought, well, Jesus said that we should say Father, Heavenly Father. And I'll tell you as soon as I remembered that, I just like, and I felt like I didn't even need to pray anymore. I said, Father, Heavenly Father, help. And I said it literally, like like three or four or five words more regarding the situation that I was aware of last night. Just help. You know I care a lot here, Dad. The amazing thing is that I didn't need to pray anymore. you You know how that works with a good father, and there is one good father. This isn't him. You're not him, and you probably didn't have a him. But there is a good father, and he is the heavenly father. And he says, cry out, Abba, Father, I think that in our prayers, it's almost like a question mark. It's almost like like we're we're in a room in our despair, in our difficulty, in our suffering, and we, we say, Dad? And he knows. And when he rounds the corner, we know that he's going to see what's going on there and know what to do, and what he does is good. I think that's what it means in verse 26 when it says the Spirit helps us. If there's anything that the Spirit, and according to this passage, it says... The spirit tells us he's dad, he's a father. He knows, he knows. It's good to say lots of other words after that word. But the most important word is the word of faith. And that word is dad, father. Come help. God gave his son. Will not God who gives us his son in verse 32 also give us all things? You see, when we cry out to dad, we're not like, I hope he'll help. And he gave us the son. We know he'll help. Who's going to bring a charge or condemn one for whom the son is given? Who's going to separate me from my father's love who gave the beloved son for me and gave me life in him? Friends, There is a reality that is non-negotiable. Verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is not a bland theology. This isn't a simple doctrinal letter. This is a love letter of faith of a one who has cried out, who's going to help this wretched body of death? I need a superhero. And he got a father and a son who loved him well. We have the gospel. We have justification by faith, clung to by faith that brings peace with this father. We have in chapter five, death, and and a life that's entered into by the son. And we ask the question, why stop sinning? And I feel even stupid going back and asking the question now that we got to eight. Well, doesn't the law bring death? No, you know the reality. Those are just excuses. Is the law to blame? No. Union with Christ, church, has given you life. The God who redeemed us. We don't have to ask, is He for us? He's already for us. He who redeems all of creation in its groaning hears our groaning, will he not surely bring our salvation to completion? Friends, there are two calls here. There is the call to the one here who has not cried out in faith. You've never said, Dad. You're still like, God. You're still like, Lord and Master, I'll do better next time. Come on. How many times have you just said that? Stop. Call out to the Father. Forgive me. I got a me problem. I don't have a particular sin problem. I have a me that needs a dad like you problem. I need forgiveness. I need grace. Will you take hold of it by faith today? Today. And if that is you, if you already know that grace, and you've taken hold of it, what's waiting? Come on, you know it. If you've been brought from death to life, what's what's waiting for us? rejoicing. Walk in this life with a knowledge of the gratitude that you have to have it. Amen. There's nothing that makes that father more pleased than to see his people rejoicing in the life that he's purchased for us. And so we pray, Father in heaven, redeem the lost. There are brothers and sisters who have not yet heard or perhaps this morning have heard and need to respond with faith. Give the gift of faith, we pray. Bring more into our family that we can learn together to cry. Together, our Father in heaven. Save, Lord, we pray. Teach us to worship, that we worship with our lives. Romans is going to be very clear. We, li- we worship as living sacrifices. Give us to walk in this life that you've purchased for us, and lay down the old deeds, lay down the deeds of the flesh and live in the way of the spirit. Lord, this is a gracious thing, can't be earned, can't be performed, but can be received with faith and thanksgiving and worship. I pray that you would do this in your church, that you would use this letter over the course of months and years to bring about the transformation that is purchased for us in the cross of Christ. Thank you, Lord. We do love you. And this itself is a gift of grace. And we do cry out, Father. And we do so in the name of the Son. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.